So moving on now to the scripture reading for today, we're in Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who has called on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they, be, unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they have not heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scripture says, How beautiful are the feet of the messenger who brings the good news. Good morning. My name is James. If you're joining us for the first time, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you could join with us. Uh, A story to start off. In the Olympic Games back in Athens in 2004, there was a guy by the name of Matt Emmons, and he was in the rifle shooting competition. He was going for a second gold medal. He was in the final round, and all he had to do on his final target was just hit the target somewhere on the target. Didn't matter where, and he would win the gold medal. And so, uh, as expected, leads down, he shoots, dead on, bullseye, as anyone would have expected to do. He begins to celebrate, but no one joins him in his celebration. Perfect shot. No one's joining. There's all of a sudden some noise. The score doesn't populate. And all of a sudden, he realized to his horror, he hit the perfect bullseye on the target next to his target, on the next lean over, right? And so he missed out on his medal then. Perfect aim, amazing aim, completely missed the target that he was supposed to be aiming at. And, and thinking about that, I think we're in this series called Hashtag Blessed, of saying, Lord, how, how do we not just receive blessed, but how are we blessed to be a blessing? And Jesus has called us, and he's saved us, that we can experience life in him, and then take that life and share it with others. I mean, we can live a great life, we can experience so many wonderful things in this world, and yet do all of that and still miss the target that we were created for. We are called to love God and experience his life, and then share that life and that love with others. And if we want to be able to love him, we must be willing to share that life and that love with others. Otherwise, we will miss the target completely. And so today, as we finish up this series on blessed, we're looking at from the acronym from the book by David Ferguson called blessed. B, begin with prayer. L, for listen. E, for eat or share a meal with others. The first S we looked at last week of serve one another. And today is the last S, the final one of share God's story. You know, there's a famous quote about this from uh, St. Francis, or it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, you know, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. I've heard that, that, phrase, that phrase so many times, I've even quoted it myself, and oftentimes in the sense of the emphasis on doing the things that need to be done to demonstrate the gospel. We've talked a ton about this as a church, of the the ways in which we serve. And in fact, this is the first four letters of bless, of pray and eat together and listen and, and serve. Is, the only talking that's necessarily required in that place is the asking of questions to be able to learn from others, and those are important. But the idea that we should only serve and not actually speak out is actually not what that quote is even saying. I just want to address that because I know it's very popular, but even St. Francis of Assisi, who it's attributed to, some of you know, is, is one of the most famous followers of Jesus since the time of the Apostles. Back during the time of the 11th century, he was a very wealthy man from a wealthy family and gave up everything he had to go live, live and serve and be among the poor. He started what's called the Franciscan Order of, of, that was just devoted to, to living a life of poverty and caring, other, caring for others. And the, the primary value of the Franciscan Order that St. Francis of Assisi started is this, and I quote, to follow the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in his footsteps. That's what it entirely was. In other words, to live in love like Jesus. Um, and, and why do I share this? And I, I share that because 
St. Francis's life, he absolutely demonstrated the gospel in all ways, in all things, at all times. It was just beautiful the way he lived it. But what he's also famous for is how frequently he used his mouth to share the gospel with the people around, so much so he was famous to even preaching to birds and animals and trees. Um, He was such a, a lover of speaking out the words of God. In fact, Dave Ferguson, who wrote the book Bless, he says, can you imagine a food organization, a food relief organization saying, you know, feed the hungry and if necessary, use food? Right? Or, or care for the sick for a medical organization, and if necessary, use medicine in bandages. Right? That doesn't make sense. So it's not a cop-out to say, well, I'm just going to serve, and I don't have to speak. Because the reality is, it does require words in order to share the truth of Christ with others. And because the reality is, no matter how much we demonstrate the love of Christ, no matter how much we serve, no matter how much we listen, no matter how many meals we enjoy together and how many good questions we ask, when it comes down to it, the reality of who Christ is must still be spoken. The truth must still become forth. A couple places in Scripture where this is explicitly to I me, mean, there's so many, but just picking a couple. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Paul, or Peter says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I love that. Be ready to share with words, with your mouth, the hope that you have in Christ. But notice the caveat here, with gentleness and respect. Now that passage, when you look at it, amazingly enough, that passage, the entire context of that passage is about Christians being attacked, vilified, slandered, and and spoken against. Right, And so he's saying, when you are being slandered, when you are the victim of hate and anger and, and, and suffering, in that place, speak forth the hope of who Christ is with gentleness and respect, even towards those who hate you, who are slandering you, and who are causing you to suffer. How do we do with that today, Christians? Is that something we are known for, church, is how well we bring forth the hope and speak of the hope of Christ in the midst of being slandered and spoken against and and suffering at the the hands of those who hate us. Not necessarily the greatest trait of the church today. Or another one in Romans 10. In Romans 10, 13, Paul says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is one Ben just read. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him unless they have heard about him? And here it is. And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We have the privilege as God's children to tell others about the reality of who Christ is. To share God's story with others and often through our own story. But the emphasis, of course, is on his story, not our own. The title of today's message is Share God's Story Through Our Own Story. And so why do we even use our own story? Doesn't that just make the gospel about us? The answer is no. We, We use our story because testimony is one of the most powerful ways to convey truth. In fact, you see it in the entirety of the New Testament. It's filled with the stories of God's people sharing the gospel or God's story with others by way of their own story. Peter does this, Paul does it, John does it, James does it, Stephen does it, even Jesus does it over and over and over again, where the gospel presentation in scriptures, they they point to Christ, but at some point in that story, they they share about how their own experiences of encountering Jesus, of, of life before him, and encountering him, and the life after. And it's kind of the way that we are wired as humanity to, that we want to know how the person we relate to experiences something. 
I mean, it's what makes Amazon such an incredible place. When it was a new idea back in the day, when you think of Amazon and you want to buy something, what's the first thing you do when you want to buy something? You go and you look at the reviews. Why? Because what other people have to say about that product and their testimony of that product is more valuable to you than anything the maker of the product would have to say. You want to know what someone else has had that experience about it. And if it's someone you know who relates to you well and they share a testimony about a product, you'll believe it even more, right? So for an example of that, we, we have a, a problem in our home with, well, we have many of them, but with one of them being that we have many kids in some older pipes and so our toilets, toilets keep getting plugged in our home. Almost every couple days, in fact, I'm called upon to do my duty to come unplug the toilets. I've tried all sorts of plungers. I've gone on Amazon, looked at all the reviews, and I've slowly got up the quality of plungers until finally I have what's called, I think it's a Corky Beehive Max, and it's the, the very best one you can get that's like the very best to get in every possible way. And it does a pretty good job, but I'll be honest, there's still a bit of splashback. It's still not fun to be able to use, um, but it's the best one I've found so far, the best reviews I've seen until that is that Sarah went to Indiana last month with the family. And while there, magically, their toilets, which were perfect for decades, all of a sudden started plugging as well. And so, um, and so her, her father got really annoyed at what was going on in their house. And so he went out of frustration and bought a monstrosity of a piece of equipment, of a contraption that I laughed over the over-engineered complexity of and thought it was ridiculous. Something that kind of Tim the Toolman Taylor would think was a cool way to declog a toilet. It's a cordless, rechargeable, high-pressure, air-powered toilet declogger, right? The <laughs> dumbest gadget I've ever seen. Um, but her, fa her father went on about the effectiveness of it, said it unplugged every single toilet almost instantly, and I thought, that's such a stupid idea. Um, but I have to be honest, it's awesome. So, <laughs> so this thing is amazing. I am convinced by his testimony, totally shaped my idea. What a dumb piece of equipment until... You get your 50 PSI, and every single toilet's declogged. It's amazing, right? I'm not here to sell a product. I'm going to tell you, I was convinced by that review. I bought it, and now every toilet's perfectly unplugged instantly. No splashback. And even better than that, it unclogs every single sink that was slow draining. I am completely obsessed with this thing. It's awesome. I go, I, I'm like, when does someone get to clog the toilet next? I want to use it again, right? Um, it's amazing. TTIL, I think, was the product. If anyone wants to buy it, I should get a kickback, I think, from one of those things. But... Okay, so why do I say that? Because my guess is after this meeting, some of you are now going to go buy one of those. And I'm not here to sell you that, but the point being, why does it interest you? Because my story somehow relates to some of your stories. I've already told some people about this in the past. They went out and bought one immediately. It's kind of the best 80 bucks I've ever spent. It's a waste of money, but it's not, um, depending on how often you got to use it. But because my story resonates with your story, all of a sudden you'll think, hey, I need that too, right? And that's a simple example of it, but that's what testimony does when we're willing to be able to relate to people, not just here it is, but here's my story. And that's why you see that all throughout Scripture. And so that's, again, the power of relevant testimony. And so today what I want to do is look at one of my favorite examples is in Scripture of someone sharing the gospel through their own story. But it's one of my favorite because it's in the most insane example anywhere in Scripture of someone sharing the gospel with the most unlikely person to ever respond. And the story begins in Acts chapter 25. But before we get there... You know, in the fall, we're actually going to be going through the book of Acts together as, as a church. As we, But a short teaser of that today. I want to start in chapter 1 with the key verse of Acts because it sets up the rest of it. 
And so as Acts opens up, Jesus has died, he's resurrected. He's literally in his final moments with his disciples before he ascends back into heaven. And in chapter Acts, or chapter, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he gives literally the last thing he says to the disciples right before the next verse he ascends into heaven. Here it is. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So this is what the disciples have been waiting for. They want this power to go forth and do all the stuff they get to do. And so he says, the power will come upon you. And what is he going to say is the purpose of this power? What, what is the evidence of this power? What are they supposed to do with it? Maybe it's going to be the purpose of this they can speak in tongues. Is it maybe the purpose is so they can raise the dead or heal the sick or maybe have perfect knowledge and perfect doctrine to understand all things and, and teach all things? Is that what it is? He goes on, he says, you have power. It says, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So notice Jesus says, you will have my power to do what? To be my witnesses. To tell the world about who I am. Literally the final words of Jesus to his disciples. His parting words. You will have the power of the Holy Spirit to be with you, to tell, to share my story with the world. He says in, three, in a few different places, in Judea, Samaria, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem being where they were standing, your direct area. So here that would be Mill Creek or Evett or Bothell. Judea being the region of the area. So that'd be like the Puget Sound region for us. And then Samaria, as we talked about last week with the Samaritans, those hated groups of people, that place that you want nothing to do with, you will avoid at all costs, you have no compassion for, you can't stand those people. So maybe if we were in Idaho, we would be the Samaria, probably, right, in the Seattle area, right, if we were over there, or Montana or someone. But because we live in Samaria, what's our Samaria? And I don't really know what that is. Um, I mean, it would be whatever place you don't want to go for some. Maybe it's Capitol Hill. I don't know. But it's those people that you struggle to have compassion for that are so radically different than your own. And then he says, and to the ends of the earth as well. And that's why we send people as missionaries. That's why my wife and I spent most of our lives overseas as missionaries. It's why we're sending a team and we're supporting to go to PNG next month is because it's to the end of the world as well. And so, this is Jesus' final command to the disciples. Last words to them. You will have the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. To do what? To share my story with a hurting world that doesn't know me. That's his departing command. Use your mouth. Share my story. All right? So now let's jump to chapter 25. So chapter 25 opens of Acts with Paul being sent to prison. And he's been in prison, or sorry, he's been in prison for, for, for two years now because of sharing the gospel and using his mouth to do that. And he was thrown in there by the Roman governor of Judea named Felix. And that governor is kind of the position of Pontius Pilate, Pilate that had Jesus crucified. He's a couple generations removed from him as the Roman governor. And he was so scared of the Jews, didn't know what to do with Paul. And he kind of, so he kept him in locked up without knowing what to do. And he was also hoping for a bribe. And anyway, so in chapter 25, the new Roman governors, we enter into this chapter as a guy named Festus. And he brings Paul in for question. Remember, this is the Roman governor, just like Pilate, has immense power. And he brings Paul in, and this is where Paul, in this conversation, demands to go to Rome, if you remember this story at all, and to be able to be tried by Caesar rather than by Festus. And so Festus says, okay, and we're going to pick the story up in verse 13 right here, and he says this. A few days after this, King Agrippa arrived with his sister Bernice to pay their respects to Festus. During their stay of several days, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. There is a prisoner here, he told him, whose case was left for me by Felix. So here we learn that King Agrippa 
and his sister Bernice arrive to see the Roman governor Festus. And they begin talking about Paul's case. Now, these names are very important, as we're going to share here in a second. So first, you have Felix. That was the last Roman governor who imprisons Paul, right? And again, all these are the same positions as Pontius Pilate. Next, you have Festus. His, he is the successor to Felix. So he is the current Roman governor with all the power of life and death, all the rest. Next is the guy named King Agrippa, and this is King Agrippa II. He's the king of the Galilean region, very, very powerful uh, king in that area, given power. He's Jewish, has power over all that region, is well-liked by the Jews in that area. And so he is the king with all that power in that place. And then the other person mentioned in Bernice, who is the king's Agrippa's sister. And I, I put that in quotes, as you'll see in a second. So... Festus begins to tell Agrippa about all that's been happening with Paul, and, and, and Festus is confused about what's been going on and why the Jews are so angry at him, because he doesn't know the whole story. And he tells the king that when the Paul's accusers came, it made no sense. And he says this in verse 19. And he goes, instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus, who Paul insists is alive. He goes, I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things. So Festus is confused, doesn't know what's going on, and then the king responds. King Agrippa says this in verse 22. I'd like to hear that man myself, Agrippa said. And Festus replied, you will tomorrow. And so the next verse. So the next day, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditorium with great pomp. Just this huge fair, like almost like a military parade that came through. Accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. All the top brass, all the top leaders of the entire city are there for this meeting. Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are here, this is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. But in my opinion, he's done nothing deserving death. So again, so the king and his sister arrive, and they're there with all the top officials. And this is, before I get into what he says, I want to give context here to who these people are. Because Paul's about ready to share the gospel with this audience. But it's important to know who he's talking to, not just their names, but a little understanding, a little background of them. So first of all, this is King Agrippa II. He is the grandson of a man named Herod the Great. And remember that name in Scripture? If you go back when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was the one who was so scared of the birth of Jesus that he is the one that tried to kill Jesus and had every single baby in the entire area murdered and slaughtered in order to try to kill Jesus. That's King Agrippa's granddaddy. All right? So he's got some messed up genes in his blood. But guess who King Agrippa II's father is named? King Agrippa I, right? No surprise. And King Agrippa I, does anyone know what he did in Scripture? Come on, Awana graduates, right? What did he do in Scripture? It's in Acts chapter 12. King Agrippa I has John, the apostle John arrested. He then cuts off James's, the apostle James's head, and God is angry, and he judges him, and he falls down, and worms eat his body alive. And it's a famous story that is told at that time. That's this dude's dad and his grandfather, right? I'm pretty sure Agrippa II remembers these stories really, really well. Next are Agrippa's sisters, or his siblings. His firstborn died early. He was the secondborn. The thirdborn is his sister, Bernice. And then another one, and the fifthborn was a girl named Drusilla who married Governor Felix, the one who imprisoned Paul. Right? So this is this dude's connection to all this stuff. His younger sister was married to the guy that put Paul in prison. And this is this family that's here. And then we get King Agrippa II. He was seven years old when Jesus was crucified. 
He had a great relationship with Emperor Claudius at the time, who gave him the position of power. His sister Bernice, who's here, she was married and divorced three times by the age of 21, after which her and her brother, King Agrippa, became a thing. And they began an incestuous relationship, lived together, ruled together. In fact, even in the ancient Roman times, this was considered scandalous and horrific. There's multiple writings describing how horrific and shameful this was, but they were open about it. This was something that was a fact at the time. They were together at that point. So here is the situation that Paul finds himself in. I mean, does anyone remember a different story about Herod Antipas and what happened to him when he tried, or what happened to John the Baptist when he tried speaking against Herod Antipas and marrying his sister? John was beheaded, wasn't he? So do you see how twisted and incestuous all of this is? This was the Roman leadership. This is who Paul is being judged by. It's hedonism to the extreme. It's it's just pure evil, power-hungry people who do not care about others. And Paul is defending himself before a king whose grandfather tried to wipe out Jesus and committed mass murder of infants to wipe out Christianity whose own father arrested his dear friend, the Apostle John, cut off his other dear friend, the Apostle James's head, and tortured many. Dear friends of Paul for saying the exact same things that Paul is saying in this moment. I mean, can you imagine how terrifying that position would be for Paul? Standing before Festus and Herod Agrippa and Bernice, knowing the power they have and how sick and twisted that family tree is. They represent those who tried to kill Jesus, those who murdered innocents, those who killed his apostles and friends. And now they've arrested him. He's been in prison for two years. This evil dynasty is hell-bent on wiping out Jesus and all of his followers. King Agrippa knows the story of Paul deeply and knows it very well. He'd be furious at him. And I can only imagine the hatred he felt towards Paul. And also, imagine the way Paul would feel towards this man, knowing his involvement in the death of so many of his loved ones. And why do I share all this background? Because I cannot conceive of a situation or a scenario in which telling the gospel to someone would be more difficult and more fruitless than Paul in that moment speaking to an entire like stadium-like situation of all these Roman officials with these men at the helm. They were the very definition of Samaritans for Paul the most evil, hated people he could possibly imagine. There's no one I could conceive of today anywhere on the globe that would be more difficult to present the gospel to than these people. And the reality is Paul doesn't even need to talk to Agrippa. You see, he'd already appealed to Rome. He doesn't even have to show up or say anything, and he could save his neck. The only hope he has, is they, or the only thing that might happen from being meeting with these guys, is that they would cut his head off by saying these things. He has no value in doing this. But why does he want to speak to Agrippa and Festus and Bernice? Why does he risk his life and everything to do this? Because he has compassion on them, as we talked about last week. He wants for them to hear the gospel. That's his hope. Is that through his life and maybe his death, they would experience the reality of who Jesus is. This sexual deviant who destroyed and murdered his friends and his family because Paul was locked on the right target. He was an arrow and just locked on the correct target. He's not deterred by the circumstances. 
He's not looking at it with earthly eyes. Otherwise, he wouldn't waste his time with these guys. But he knows that he can't save anyone, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that the power goes forth, as we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Not his own. He just has to be obedient. And so he doesn't write off King Agrippa. Let's just be honest. How many of us write off people? Talked about before that we think are too far gone. Think are too hardened or too argumentative or maybe too intelligent or, or too prosperous. We just think, yeah, that ground is too hard. I'm not going to share with them. They won't listen. I was so deeply challenged by my buddy, Emmanuel. Um, some of you may have met him, been here a while. He's one of the missionaries we support. Sadly, he was actually supposed to be here this week and preaching, um, but he couldn't get a visa. Hopefully next time we'll bring him out. But he grew up as a prince of one of the wealthiest royal families in Africa. Uh, insanely wealthy. He had every modern luxury you could possibly imagine. He, as a teenager, used to enjoy wrecking luxury sports cars, right? Because he had so much money to waste. It was a fun thing he used to do. Anyways, after, after accepting Christ and losing everything, every, literally everything, going from that to beyond abject poverty, I met up with him in South Africa, and, and we began to, to work together and do ministry together. I mentored him for a long time. And, and when we were doing ministry, our main focus of our ministry was often to the most poor and the broken among the, among the world in South Africa and the, the townships there. And I worked with, you know, as I've talked about, the gangsters and other people. And all the ministries we did within our program were primarily to the poor and the broken. And anyways, as we often do each week, we're going out doing evangelism, we're going out and we're going out to the homeless and do other stuff. And Emmanuel got so mad. He's like, James, why do you only reach out to the homeless and the broken and the poor? He goes, don't the rich need Jesus, or do you think it's easier to reach them, and so you don't go after the other guys? I'm like, oh, kind of? I don't know. I mean, I just, I never had someone question me that. He goes, why don't you go, he goes, because we lived in a beach town. He goes, there's so many Ferraris and other things. Why don't you go after those guys? I don't know what to say. And he goes, I'm going to them. And so he went and looked at the guys that drive the Bentleys and the Ferraris and Lamborghinis. We'd go chat with them about their cars and the engines and everything else. They thought he was a, a beggar or something to try and give him money. He's like, no, I want to talk. And he goes, what do you think about this does in the third, in the third gear and stuff? Like he could talk with them all about what was going on and shared the gospel nonstop with them. It was amazing. In fact, even to this day, when he comes able to share the stories, today he literally rocks up to palaces and demands meetings with kings. No joke. He meets with dignitaries and royalty and billionaires. He feels that God has to reach them too. And he's like, why do we only reach after the poor? Deeply challenging to me. Because who do we often write off as assume is not worth our time? And maybe that boss at work, maybe an angry coworker, Maybe it's the person that sinned so much that we think they're too far gone into their sin that they won't be interested. But the amazing thing is we don't need to be anxious like Paul here because it's not a about us. Our job is to be obedient and to share and to speak and to love in the way Christ has called us to. So we need to pray. We need to listen. If there's opportunity. Find a way to share a meal and connect and then serve. And as the opportunity presents itself, to share God's story through our own. Amen? Instead of assuming they're too far away from God, what Paul did is so beautiful is he assumed that God had already been working in their life for years. And so as he tells the story of God, he relates it to their own story. He assumes that God is at work rather than assuming that they are too far gone. Instead of assuming resistance, he assumes that it's an opportunity to share. And that is such an important perspective shift to make as we talk with other people. Rather than assuming I'm walking up with this hardened person, assume that God is already planting the seeds of his life within their own lives. I love that. Do we assume that? That God is already at work in the people's lives whom we come across? So Paul begins to share his own story, relate to the king, as 
Assume again that it's the next link in the chain for these guys. And he says this. It says, as the Jewish leaders are well aware, Paul says, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. He says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Notice what Paul is doing here. He's connecting the story of God to King Agrippa's family and his story to King Agrippa's situation, saying, I was just like you. In fact, I was also so against Jesus that, in fact, I had followers of Jesus murdered too. Paul finds a place to identify with King Agrippa and his story. He emphasizes the most relatable parts where they have things in common of his own story. It's not just some canned message that he gives. He never says the message this way to anybody else. It's always catered to the person and the situation and the environment. He tells it different every time. And what's so important here is he listens and he learns and then he directly shares into their circumstances. He finds out where those places of commonality are. And he relates his story and the story of God directly into their circumstances. That's why we have to listen. We have to pray and listen, get a heart for people to to know how to, not just what to say, but how to say it and meet people right where they are at. In another book, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this about this approach. He says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, he says, Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. He says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I'm not subject to that law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. He goes on the other side. And then when I was with Gentiles who don't follow the Jewish law, I too didn't follow the Jewish law, so I can bring the Gentiles to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. They're like, but are you breaking the law? He goes, no, because I follow the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share in their weaknesses, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. That's how Paul viewed this. doesn't mean that we sin in order to relate to those who are in sin. But it means we meet people where they were at. I think I shared before, it's why when I'm in China, I sing karaoke songs. And not just in English. I had to learn the Chinese version of, of karaoke songs. All these funky songs we had to learn, right? Here it mean, might mean, and maybe in America in this area, we, maybe you have to learn to play cornhole. I don't know. Maybe you got to learn how to, to go to the gym. Maybe you got to learn to play golf. Maybe you got to smoke a cigar. I don't know. You know, most of my neighbors in my area are Indian. In fact, we've had two more houses open up. Both were bought more by Indian families. And so that means that even though I already I really enjoy it, but I need to learn more about cricket because it's what they always want to talk about is about cricket. And I don't know if you guys know this who are from this area, but did you know that in Seattle, we now have an international sports franchise, a brand new one. Anyone know its name? Seattle Orcas. You heard of it? Part of the Major League Cricket League that just started. In fact, they will have more followers than the Seahawks, the Mariners, and the Sounders combined. Why? Because they have a global audience of India and all over the rest of the world that's outside of America. 
And so if I want to get to know my Indian neighbors, it means I need to meet them where they at. I need to, luckily I already do from living overseas for so many years in South Africa and Australia and other places. Cricket's awesome. In fact, they don't, not only is it cricket, they play the most exciting version T20 cricket. And I'll be honest, I grew up playing baseball my whole life, and I'm sorry for baseball fans here. T20 cricket is so much more fun than American baseball. I'm sorry, I know that'll get not really kindly received, but seriously, get into it. If you have Indian neighbors, learn about it, watch some, go to some games, get to know them, because Indians are passionate about their cricket. Sorry, I might have just lost everyone right there. Um, Maybe I should have said that. (laughs) You know, along these lines, there's this absolutely insane story in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is taking, going to meet these Jews and wants to meet them where they're at. He has Timothy with him. And Timothy is Greek, or it's one Greek that and one Jewish parent, and, and so he, he isn't circumcised. And so this is a big deal to the Jews. And so in order for Paul to be able to minister effectively to the Jews, he does the most insane thing ever. He says, Timothy, I need you to get circumcised. Now, what's insane is Paul is the same guy who writes and says circumcision counts for nothing. In fact, he says, if you get circumcised to be saved, you will not be saved and you will lose it. He is very against the idea of getting Greek people circumcised. But in this case, he tells Timothy to get circumcised. Why? Because if you want to be able to minister among these people, you need to get on their level. You need to meet them where they're at. I mean, I've heard of people, you know, getting tattoos to be more relevant. He literally got circumcised be relevant. That's how much Paul believed in this. I heard a pastor once say, you know, Paul had Timothy circumcised because he wanted Timothy to have some real skin in the game. Um, Sorry, that's painful. Sorry, that was low. John Harris, you can appreciate that one. Um, Sorry, uh, couldn't resist. Um, So again, prayer and listening and having time over meals are important to get to know people, to be able to meet them where they are at. Ask the Holy Spirit for for how to share. Not to give canned messages that are memorized and just repeated in some way, but to relate to them right where they're at. We need to meet people on their terms, learn about their culture, learn about their interests, listen to them, and share the gospel into their circumstances through our own stories. So, So to recap, we must share God's story through our own story. We must not make assumptions. And second, we must not make assumptions of who is interested but assume that God is already at work in people's lives. And then third, we must meet people where they are at. It needs to be on their terms, not on our terms, as we share the gospel into their context, not invite them into ours. You know, when we came back from South Africa, my father was starting to get sick, and my kids barely knew my my parents because we... Their whole lives, they were born in South Africa and didn't come home much. And my dad was talking to me one time that he was bummed because the kids didn't hang out with him. They didn't play with him. He was in a weakened state. He had cancer and other stuff. And I remember one time he was talking about, uh, he was just, he was like, bummed, like, your kids don't want to hang out with me. And I said, Dad, it's really easy. Just go get on their level and play with them, and they'll want to play with you. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, we just go build Legos with them or, or wrestle with them or, or play Minecraft or, or play chess or a board game. Just do anything that's on their level, and instantly they'll be all over you. Remember, he told me, he goes, James, but I don't enjoy those things. I'm like, yeah, but they do. And even my dad in his weakened state in that final year before he's dying, he started doing that stuff, playing chess with them and even wrestling with them in his you know, cancer-ridden chemo state. And, and the kids were all over him. And they got to know my dad before he passed because my dad got on their level, even in his weakened state. And it's the same for us in connecting with our neighbors and coworkers to be on their level, to speak on their level. Maybe not get into wrestling matches with our neighbors, 
Um, maybe Melissa are into MMA, but uh, Paul relates to the people in that way. I mean, you can go read the rest of the story for yourself. After this, Paul then gives his testimony. I mean, just read Acts chapter 25 and 26 later. Paul gives his testimony of how he meets Jesus and how Jesus changed his life, how he turned from sin. And, and then he says to King Agrippa directly, or, or he addresses King Agrippa directly, and he says, I know, King, that you know what I'm talking about. Because Agrippa knows all about the history of Jesus. He knows about what's going on with Paul. And Paul is sharing with him. And Agrippa, I love this, he interrupts him and he says, Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? This is the powerful king. Could you imagine standing up as Paul's giving this feeble gospel? Do you think you can convert me to Christianity? How stupid do you think you are, you little prisoner? And here's Paul's response. I love this. Paul responded, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am except for these chains. I love that. Paul knows it's not up to his eloquence. It's not up to his timing. It's not on him. It's the Holy Spirit alone. But again, he's focused on the right target. He's locked in. And that people, even those who are absolutely furthest from the gospel, who are the furthest, hardest heart to possibly respond. God's at work in their life already. He also knows it's not just about that moment. He shares what's appropriate. He gives a condensed version of the gospel. He weaves it through his own story and relates it to them. And he trusts God with the rest. Notice there's no altar call here. There's no story of thousands accepting Christ in a massive salvation effort. There's no sinner's prayer. Not even a story of someone getting healed, let alone his shadow healing someone or some other crazy event. In fact, we don't even know what goes on to happen with King Agrippa and Festus and Bernice in regards to their faith. Not a single mention of someone coming to Christ that day. But Paul was obedient. And I guarantee you, as we spoke about last week, King Agrippa's hardened heart was softened that day. And I bet you his head started turning towards Jesus. So we're talking about last week, he took some steps from the back of the room where he was totally faced away and he began to turn a little bit that day. Same with Bernice, same with Festus. So what about us today? You may say, you know, I'm not a Paul. I don't have some crazy story of murdering Christians that I can give some cool testimony about. If you do, I'd love to talk to you. That'd be a crazy story. Emmanuel has that story. We can talk about that another time. Um, you could say, maybe I'm not a drug addict. I'm not a gangster. I don't have some crazy history of drugs and sex and violence. I'm not like so-and-so. So who wants to hear my story? What, what am I going to share? And that's where we're wrong. Because our story is the story of God's story and what he's done in and through our lives. And maybe that's not turning from drugs or something else, but it, it doesn't have to involve some crazy things. It could simply be meeting us at different points along our journey. Where were you lonely? Where were you struggling? Where were you experiencing joy and you experienced the handiwork of God in and through your life? It's not some formula. 
that we just have to repeat and memorize something. You know, I was listening to a number of people that teach on this and reading the books and sermons of the years on evangelism or what or preach teachings on it. And most people, you know, give a, a very canned thing. It's nothing wrong. It's a beautiful thing. You learn, learn your five-minute testimony. You learn the first part, you know, before I met Jesus. Then you learn the conversion part of when you met Jesus. And then you learn how to share the post-Jesus part. And you got to learn it in five minutes. Then we have everyone memorize it and you go away and do that. And that's great. And there's a valuable thing to learn how to do it. And I encourage people to learn how to share their story. But I'm going to be honest with you, in, in 25 years on the mission field, of seeing hundreds of people accept Christ, maybe only a couple times have I ever had that perfect situation of events where someone gave me three to five minutes for my Jesus elevator speech. Right? It just never works out that way, that I'm given you know, that perfect thing to just share my story in this, this perfect block. Unless maybe I'm st- standing up on a stage or I'm on some soapbox somewhere or it's usually not a part of natural conversation. Instead, the way it usually happens is very organically, with lots of prayer, lots of listening, lots of asking good questions. Sometimes meals together and quality time together and seeding conversations and building trust over days and weeks and months and sometimes over years until find maybe there's an opportunity, that slightly awkward place after a few times of hanging out and just saying, hey, I don't mean it's kind of weird, but can I, can I be praying for you? Anything I'll be praying for you for it? It's just that little bit awkward that first time and then they kind of thought it was weird, but maybe they share something that creates an opportunity. Or maybe... You go through these questions we've given a number of times, but the deeper questions, there's a stack of them on the, on the, the box back there. They're all on our website on multiple weeks of our, our slide downloads. Just asking some basic questions with people of things that kind of move it towards the spiritual conversations. And I often encourage people to pray the agnostic prayer. God, if you are real, reveal yourself. And just simple, basic ways that begin to point people to him. And, but again, I begin with prayer. And as we do this, it's just central, this whole process, this organic approach. As we've been talking about this blessed thing of begin with prayer. If that is not a daily part of your life, it needs to be, people. If we are followers of Jesus, we are not daily, not just praying through Scripture, but daily praying for the people around us, for God to open up their hearts and to use us in their life or to align our hearts to His. You're missing out on the target. You're aiming at the wrong target. So daily praying that God would open my heart to reach them and work within their lives. And then listening and listening well and asking questions and looking for opportunities to share meals and work connections with people and serving. And then as the opportunity presents itself, intentionally taking the opportunity to share God's story and weaving it through our own and asking the Holy Spirit to lead, to connect it to points of their story, of where they're at, of testimony. It's not complicated, but we have to be intentional. It doesn't happen naturally. Naturally, we will avoid it. Naturally, we will just stay in the background, keep serving, of not wanting to speak because we're nervous about what's going to happen. But we have to be intentional. And the statistics have shown, we've talked about it before, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people, of non-Christians, say they are open to hearing about the faith journey of a Christian that is a friend. The vast, vast majority of all people polled that don't know Jesus, they're open to hearing it from a friend when there is a relationship. We must be locked on the target. Not how do I create the most comfort possible, how do I live in the perfect bubble, but Jesus, how do I align my life to increasingly living and loving like you, to love God and to love our neighbors. Amen? So this summer and beyond, may this be a passion of all of ours. Begin with prayer. Listen well and ask questions. Share meals, serve, and share the gospel. Because as Paul said one more time, Romans 10, 14, how can they believe in him if they have not heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone 
tells them. And how can anyone tell them without being sent? That's why it's said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's the target. With the testimony of our hands, the testimony of our feet, and of our mouths. Amen? Just before we pray, sometimes you may get the opportunity where someone asks, you know, why, why are you a Christian? And when someone asks me that, like instantly, I'm just overwhelmed with excitement. Maybe some of you are dreaded. I'm overwhelmed with excitement. I got my two-hour sermon ready to go. I'm like, ah! Just stop, pray. Okay, Lord, what, what is the small 30-second, 15-second version just to briefly begin the conversation? Almost always, I just start by sharing part of God's story. And so if you're here today and you're not currently following Jesus, I just want to, again, just briefly tell a little bit of God's story. Because before the beginning... It was the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all God, before the creation of time. And they existed in perfect fellowship, and they decided that they wanted to pour their love into creation. They wanted to create a humanity to reflect their love for one another, to experience their life, their love, to experience creation, and experience joy and love with one another. And they decided to pour that out into creation, to enjoy them for all of eternity. You see, I follow Jesus because Jesus created us, all of us, out of an overwhelming longing to pour his love into us, for us to experience his life and his love with him and with one another in creation for all of eternity. And then when we screwed it up and we turned against him and we turned against God, he then gave his life for us to restore that fellowship because his ultimate longing is for us to experience his life and his love with him and creation and one another for all time. There is nothing more freeing than living the life that God literally created us to live, to experience his life and his love here and now and for all of eternity. And right now he invites all of us to experience his life to walk away from the pain and the brokenness and experience the abundant life that he created us for. That's why I follow Jesus. So pray with me as we close. Jesus, for those here who do not confess you as Lord and Savior, I just pray right now, Lord, may you move in their lives and in their hearts and draw them unto yourself. Jesus, may there be people today praying that agnostic prayer. God, if you are real, Reveal yourself to me and draw people's hearts to you right now. This invitation for you right now, for those who don't know Jesus, right now you just respond to him and say, Lord, I don't fully get it all, but I want you. I want you to be Lord of my life. I'm tired of the pain. I'm tired of the brokenness. I want to experience your life and your love today. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, for the rest of us, May we be emboldened, Lord. As Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, be empowered by your Holy Spirit to go forth and to share our lives and your words and your story with those who are far from you. Embolden us, empower us, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit. Thank you, Lord.